Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. For all the talk of the rise in visibility of European financial regulation, European politics, like those in the United States, are always changing, and this reality will have an impact on what regulation looks like for fintech, whether it be crypto, neobanks, cloud computing, or AI. So if you really want to understand just where the regulatory curve is heading, you better know the politics. And we at The Beat are delighted to welcome someone who is truly one of the best persons in the world to do this. Dea Markova, a managing director at Forefront Advisors and one of the smartest people in the world when it comes to fintech policy. And I'm not exaggerating, she worked as a consultant, a senior manager for the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and is widely regarded to as a go-to voice for everything that happens in Brussels. So we're going to pick her super brain and ask her just what is the direction of AI and crypto regulation in Europe, and what do the looming elections mean for the sectors. Dea, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. You know, obviously there's a lot when it comes to financial regulation and, and you know, there are different kinds of starting points uh, that one could think of uh, when it comes to the regulation of digital finance. So if you're going to sort of sum up that, that arc of engagement, I mean, wh- where exactly does it begin? Sure, Chris. So I think it's helpful to think about the European Commission's digital finance strategy as the as the beginning of the arc. And uh, your audience might find the timing serendipitous or at least easy to remember because we had the digital finance strategy published in September 2020, which is about the start of the bull run um, in crypto. Um, it is uh, coincidental and not the grand master plan of the European Commission. I have that on good faith. But the pillars of that digital finance strategy are around digital payments, around digital assets, around open data in finance, operational risk. And those are the things that we should be paying attention to when we ask where is the where does the EU stand on digital finance today? So that's really interesting because what you're seeing then is the European Commission unveiling this kind of strategy. It's kind of earlier on when money is flowing into the cycle, which is I think a little bit different from how things have been working out in the United States, where we're, we tend to be a little bit more responsive when things uh, go wrong. So just sort of intellectually, but where do things go from there? Because you know when you kind of opt into things early, then new kinds of exogenous events can kind of uh, rattle things around. Um, What happens afterwards? What are the next parts of the story? Yeah, no, that's quite interesting to put it in that context. Like I said, I don't think it was the market, the grand master plan to time the market, but the fact that they did time the market made a difference on the negotiations. Um, And so, um, what if, if we were having the same legislation proposed today, maybe the outcomes could be even more risk averse than they were. So that's one uh, one thing that happened. Another thing that happened is that the market downturn exposed a lot of risks and vulnerabilities. So, so 
other uh, jurisdictions, the US, the UK, for example, are now in slightly better position to address these vulnerabilities other than the EU. So the EU can win the for the race. Um, I kind of think so. Like legislatively speaking, MIC um, is written out there as almost as a global blueprint for crypto legislation. But Mika, for example, says nothing on lending. Because we know that lending, the problem with lending are, came surfaced with Celsius. And that, that was already sort of the, in the tail end of the negotiations. So for the EU, we have to go through sort of one run of Mika uh, before we do the, the revision in order to address lending and staking. Whereas London um, is very well positioned to include that and they will include that in their um, first version equivalent of Mika. So do you view that then as as the kind of priorities going forward? I mean, we have Mika. Mika is not a done deal for a number of reasons. Number one, as you said, it, it doesn't cover everything uh, when it comes to crypto. And then secondly, you still have 18 months of implementation ahead for all the different regulatory bodies. I mean, Mika is sort of like the the general principles and, and you have the actual regula- regulation and implementation that has to be undertaken. What do you sort of see then as as both the the legislative priorities coming out of the commission and and, and the parliament compared to or in, against the backdrop of of all this implementing that's going to be done by the European Banking Authority and other bodies? So the the level one legislative agenda, so the stuff that's going to come out of Brussels, um, is now turning towards payments. Um, so we are. Um, um, in the eve of what I really want to coin as Super Wednesday in the EU, um, is a day when uh, through n- not particular design, but we're going to get a, a proposals around digital payments, open open, open data in finance and the digital euro. So the Europe's uh, CBDC project. And those are going to dominate the Brussels legislative agenda in the lead up to the EU elections, which are the summer of next year. The next layer, as you say, is what happens um, in the level two in the technical standards. So Mika, also operational resilience with DORA, those are in the hands of the supervisory authorities, the EBA, ESMA, as you say. And those technical standards are very complex, not only because it's a new emerging tech area, it's very technical, but also because the cost of some of the consensus reached in Brussels were to push down really tricky questions down to particularly ESMA and the EBA. Um, So we're trying to regulate a global payments industry here with regional laws. How to square that circle? That is now the EBA's problem. Yeah, uh, sounds like fun. <laughs> you know, I uh, busy days. Uh, busy days. Like you know, I had uh, Verena Ross over to to Georgetown, and it was also a very interesting conversation of just how much has to be done in the next eighteen months. You know, when it comes to really working through a lot of those very tricky questions. Um, let's just sort of stick for the moment then with with those legislative priorities. Uh, you were talking about payments. I love the the Super Wednesday sort of idea here. You have payments and then you have uh, CBDC. Let's work backwards uh, between those two. When you say CBDC, what exactly, what are the major issues that are being hashed out uh, legislatively? So um, the European Central Bank, like other central banks, have been trialing the idea of a, a central bank digital currency, the digital euro. 
Um, so that's more of like a technical assessment if you would think about it. Bank of England is going through a similar process. The EU has decided, as the UK will decide for sure, that that changing the way we pay each other needs a legislative framework. Um, in the simplest of terms, we need to accept the digital euro as legal tender in Europe. Uh, but there are a number of other decisions that the Commission, the Council and the Parliament would opine on. So that's the legislative backbone that the ECB needs in order to go ahead with the Digital Europe project. And that is going to be on the proposal table next Wednesday. And that, in my opinion, is impossibly politically complicated. So the upcoming elections, um, nationalism, privacy, these are all such politically charged topics that they will all uh, no doubt influence each other. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- that is, I guess, one of the big differences between, say, legislation at the EU level and, and then uh, federal regulation here in, in, in the United States. The fact that you, you, you have not only sort of the values of different uh, participants in that conversation, but you do have this, this overarching question of member states uh, and, and, and even nationalism uh, that can really inform how a country views itself and its own interests in something like CBDC and, and, and also payments. I mean, when you look at those conversations, both the, the CBDC and then the other payments, and, 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 and I should have also followed up with maybe a little bit more on, on what's happening in the payment space, what do the politics look like? And what do you think are the salient um, kinds of features that people from outside of Europe should really be aware of? So I think when it comes to, when you say what do the politics look like, there is what do the elections mean? So that's one way of, of measuring what the politics look like. Um, and then maybe what are the issues that can be e- easily politicized, even in the absence of elections, that maybe that's another measure. So if I take these in turn, elections put timelines to negotiations, both in Europe and in London, uh, and in the UK. Um, that means that either something is going to get done and it will become the fact that it's being it's done. It's be, going to become someone's electoral platform, or um, so a, a policymaker might prioritize their own sort of electoral platform over the opportunity of finding consensus. So, if you think about the classic sort of left-right split, um, either that candidate is going to become the candidate that brought about exchange. Uh, whatever example change, or it's going to be the candidate who's you know stuck to their protected their electorate and stuck to their principles. And if I can pick two examples, AI and digital euro. Digital euro, I think, will be, and I think there is a concern about this from from Brussels, then the digital euro will become an electoral agenda where various political parties, member states, uh, members of the European Parliament dig their heels in. Um, and, and and particularly for Europe, this dig, the, dig their heels in around the pro-Europe or anti-Europe narrative, which we have seen, the anti-Europe narr- narrative we've seen on the rise in a number of countries like Netherlands, Spain, obviously Poland, uh, Italy, big examples. So we are not going to see any meaningful consensus being done on digital euro. We're going to see a lot of statements in the public space. Um, and any vulnerabilities of the project, and privacy, I think, is a very good proxy for that, um, will be unpicked and exposed and, and fodder for, for headlines and, and speeches. Um, the opposite, perhaps, could happen on the AI Act. Another big topic, another classic um, you know, sort of security versus liberty debate, at least. 
Um, but here, I think we have more of an opportunity for the, the actors to align into some meaningful consensus um, ahead of the, the when they stop working, which is ahead of the elections in June next year, um, because we have such political pressure to do something, because technology is moving in a way that both industry and policymakers find scary, um, and and we we may want to. Um, there, there's more to gain from consensus than from rhetorics, perhaps. You know, you're, you're, in that particular framing, you know, it's a little bit uh, uh, interesting because in the United States, we have the same kinds of privacy concerns, though maybe not to the same extent um, as as in Europe, maybe because you guys have already worked through or, or have had a values conversation with GDPR, the, the European sort of privacy uh, legislation and, and questions of data kind of hang around the European discussion in a different way um, as they do here in, in, in the United States. But what we do tend to talk about a little bit more is sort of the, the, the interests of banks in all of this, right? And the banking industry, which, you know, can inform how things like a central bank or a digital dollar would, 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 would roll out. I mean, are, are you seeing that kind of concern uh, uh, expressed by the banking sector is, or, or is that a kind of a smaller feature of the debate? Yeah, not at all. So if, if I would say if the digital euro has three big questions it needs to address, both politically and um, commercially, it would be the commercial model. So who pays for what, how? Um, the, um, the use case why on earth do we need a digital euro, and the privacy point. So your question around banking, um, I think, goes to, around banks goes towards the commercial model. We, the first concern we hear is, will this, uh, will this challenge financial stability? Now, we know that's not the plan. We know that, and we know that, that, that protecting financial stability is not really difficult to achieve. All you have to do is make sure people don't keep their money in digital euro deposits, which is not the intention of the ECB, um, to do, and and there's and there's no imaginable timelines in this changing. Um, so I find the financial stability scarecrow a very powerful argument on the banking side, but really like a non-concern when it comes to member states and the ECB. The, the the thing that is a concern is who pays for it. So who pays for the technological change if there isn't if there is some, and most importantly if paying with the digital euro is going to be more affordable to people and merchants, what happened to the payment fees that banks get from alternative methods of payment? So we talk about financial stability, but that's not what we mean. We mean the bottom line, I think. Yeah, you had mentioned, you know, about this question of the deadline and how an election sort of sets a deadline and kind of forces a politician into thinking, am I going to be the candidate who ran against something? Or am I going to be the candidate who sort of enabled something to happen, right? What do you think uh, is going to be the likelihood? I mean, as, as, as you mentioned, we have these upcoming elections in the EU for representatives to be coming to the European Union. And obviously, we have the big UK uh, elections. Uh, in your judgment, like, what's the likelihood of these kinds of priorities being addressed because of the election? Is it your judgment that we'll get some kind of action or that these issues, the payments issues, the, the CBDC issues will, will likely be pushed off into the next uh, mandate. So I would put perhaps the payments issue as kind of a technical and agreeable one. 
So, so the, the elections timeline might help it being um, addressed. So um, to be specific, um, um, Europe has this law, Payment Service Directive. It's gone through a number of revisions. We're now looking at the, the third one. And then we're going to, for sort of, you know, the legal people out there, um, we're going to propose a payment, Europe, so the European Commission is going to propose a payment service regulation. It's a big um, um, text um, covering a lot of areas, but it's relatively technical and therefore it's harder to get it politicized. And generally speaking, payments is not what you run election you know, campaigns on top of. Um, so that might become um, an unachievable, uh, a technical uh, task, a legislative task. Whereas I do think that um, the digital euros have been saying um, will get um, distracted kidnapped by the by the electoral agenda is there something that, that that you think makes the nature of either the eu elections or the uk elections more critical or decisive for crypto or ai regulation is, is there something a little bit different in the nature of either one of those two elections since obviously by definition uh the uk's politics can diverge quite substantially from uh those of the eu um, well, I think what makes them decisive is that we've never had elections and, and this much technical uh, digital finance regulation at the same time. Um, so, so it's more the timing of it. I think it is useful to remember, though, that um, you know the world doesn't revolve around crypto assets. So the electoral platforms um, um, in, in both um, it will not really address that issue. Um, the UK elections are interesting in that we're going to see a change of uh, changing of the card, which we haven't seen for quite some time. And so naturally, the industry is trying to work out what does Labour think about digital assets? Uh, in fact, like, why does Labour not really pick up the phone very much when we call and ask that question? Um, so it's useful to remember that um, it's not the highest priority. They will have an opportunity to sort of change attitudes um, and and then the, the relatively small advisory teams around the key uh, the key players in this are preoccupied with with bigger topics. Now, I think there is a little bit of perception misperception perhaps that Sunak's government um, kind of came to the fore with wanting to wanting to make UK a crypto hub uh, because there was a, there were a few comments that he made at the beginning of his mandate. We've seen very little of this actually being put in place, even with A16Z kind of opening offices in, in London and that being the big news. We will see a lot more tangible action around the AI agenda, which is closer um, even to his personal interest and has a much bigger societal impact. Um, so is crypto a pawn in the UK elections? If it becomes one, that's bad news. Like rather like staying off the radar is probably the most constructive thing that can happen to the industry in that electoral cycle. Um, in Europe, we already spoke about the, the sort of the politicization of the digital euro. I think that's the that's the biggest impact. Yeah, yeah, you know that, that's 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 really interesting. The one thing that crypto doesn't really do too well is is stay off the radar, <laughs> which is uh, going to be interesting to see. You know, certainly how how that plays out. Uh, you know, again, you know, we're, we're talking about AI, we're talking about, you know, digital euros, maybe, a you know, a, a digital pound, artificial intelligence. Again, some of these issues are being hatched out 
with greater velocity than others just because of the starting point. Digital assets obviously has started off a little bit earlier. When we go back to that implementation phase, right? How, how do elections impact the implementation of, of the rules that are already sort of out there, uh, particularly, uh, I, and we'll just keep running here with digital assets, but when you think about the ECB and ESMA, they have this very tight time frame for implementation. Do, do the elections inform that process at all? Like, is this something that they are aware of or, or should be aware of? Um, I think it, for the majority, they don't, right? So so the, the mandate of uh, the European supervisory authorities to write the technical standards is given independent of the uh, the EU elections, and it, it kind of would run over them. I think that what it's interesting to, to compare is in which one of the key uh, other agencies, so the European Central Bank, the supervisory authorities, um, the, the European Bank of uh, European Investment Bank, some of these have their own changing of leadership coincidentally coming up um, in the same time frame. In particular, um, at the European Central Bank level, the, the, the lead for the digital euro and the most vocal um, criti- critic of digital uh, assets, uh, Fabio Panetta. So Panetta is going to join, uh, widely expected to be appointed the governor of the Bank of Italy in November which frees up his seat on the ECB executive board. Um, So I pay attention to that, um, but I would pay attention to that without holding my hopes up uh, very high that his successor, who's likely to be another Italian, potentially the former uh, Italian uh, economy minister, um, is going to have a much different point of view. But that changing of personnel, I think perhaps, gives an opportunity to the ECB to more delicately or diplomatically reconsider some of its strong lines in the Digital Europe project, for example, on tokenization. So it's easy to backtrack if you're not the same person. That's true. So I guess I'm zooming out, I guess, to to really the, the big question that I think a lot of people are kind of interested in, whether or not you're talking about digital assets, artificial intelligence, uh, whether or not, again, we're talking about even even issues of privacy in the cloud. There's this question now about you know whether or not different countries and jurisdictions are sort of pro technology or pro even emerging technology or less, right? And and you know you, you've had your eyes on on lots of different jurisdictions um, around the world, but when you're going to compare, say, the United States to to the EU, I mean, is 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 the EU more pro-emerging technology? I don't know if that's actually a phrase. Or um, uh, is it more uh, uh, techno-skeptic uh, uh, or technophobic than the United States? I, you know, what's what's your view? I mean, you, 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 there are lots of different examples of the EU maybe having more patience, maybe, maybe not. Do you have a sense of the general culture? Well, um, I think my starting point is that, um, you know, it's, it's not hard to be less um, technophobic than the US these days, particularly when it comes to digital assets. Um, so, so, so the benchmark that is being set for one or another reason is pretty low. But that being said, I don't think it's not the EU's market strategy to attract crypto companies in, by the troves. Um, I think that 
the EU is being ends up ended up being more thoughtful and more purposeful with its regulatory uh, framework as an outcome of our processes, the balance of personalities, um, and the regulatory regulatory landscape that we have. And I had a very similar um, experience when I was working in Singapore. So there, at the time, so this was 2017-18-19, crypto companies would come um, and and almost present Singapore as this this crypto global crypto hub. Again, not the marketing intention of the 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 market development strategy of the government, just an outcome of predictable, purposeful regulatory landscape. However, um, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to think what the, how that might play out when it comes to AI, um, right? And and whether uh, whether uh, in the EU ver- will the US wake up to a reality where European companies are coming and saying, "Oh no, I'm I'm moving, I'm packing my bags uh, the other direction now." I, again, I probably my bias here would be to focus more on legislative setup than intention. Because I do think that the EU and the US, for example, are grappling with the same big thorny problems. Like, what do we do with intellectual property? But we just have different toolkits of solving them. So we can't rely on case law in the EU. In the EU. So, and then this, and actually, this kind of the inspiration for this comes from one of your previous episodes. But if you wonder, um, you know, does, does this product infringe on copyright or doesn't infringe on copyright? The U.S., the U.K., you can you can draw on case law. The EU cannot. Um, so in in this very fast moving technology space, we've got to write a framework um, that somehow predicts the future. And I think that's tough. That that that's kind of driving with what hand tied behind your back. Dan, thanks so much. We always love it when our guests reference other guests on the show. But uh, uh, seriously, this has been super helpful and 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 really gives us a unique vantage point on on some of the uh, pressing issues, especially as politics seeps into policy. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, Chris. This was fun. If regulation is the pen, then legislation is the ink. You can't just write rules unless you have the proper authority or the juice, if one will, to do it. Now, Europe is not usually viewed as particularly adept at either, but what you'll notice when you take a look at what's happening in fintech is that the EU has become, in some ways, one of the most important players in the fintech ecosystem. Somehow, it's been able to move faster than the United States, even with its 27 member strong constituent members. Now, what I am always quick to ask is whether or not this tells us more about the United States or Europe. And I'll leave that in your minds to ponder because I really can't tell. All I do know is that when it comes to moving fast to prevent things from breaking, the EU is stacking up an impressive record that all of us in the US should acknowledge. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.